Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 285th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest in today's podcast is Ryan Townsley. Ryan is the founder of Town Capital, an independent REA based in Bel Air, Maryland, that oversees nearly $50 million in asset center management for 65 client households. What's unique about Ryan, though, is how he spent the first 15 years of his career as a nuclear power plant supervisor, and then subsequently transitioned to become a financial advisor that quickly grew to nearly $50 million in asset center management in under four years by developing high-touch service back to those who he knew so well in the nuclear power industry. In this episode, we talk in depth about how, after years of giving informal financial advice to his nuclear power colleagues, Ryan was inspired to build the only financial planning firm in the country dedicated to nuclear power professionals. How Ryan worked tirelessly to develop his financial planning process to reflect nuclear power plant procedures and engineering workflows going so far as to run redundant financial planning projections in different software platforms because nuclear engineers always check their numbers twice, and why Ryan chooses to meet with potential clients over a several-month period before onboarding to allow their relationship to progress naturally rather than make them feel like they're in a sales process. We also talk about how Ryan realized his passion for personal finance while leveraging the GI Bill to receive his MBA for business purposes. How joining a large financial services firm as his first step into the industry ultimately helped Ryan understand that he enjoyed financial planning more than the sales and investment sides of the industry, and how Ryan ultimately decided that the best way to build his client base was to launch his own firm so that he could serve clients exactly the way that he wanted to see them served. And be certain to listen to the end, where Ryan shares how he was surprised at how few referrals he received when he first launched his firm, despite having years of nuclear power expertise in a specialized niche. How the combination of competitiveness and inability to quit on himself and concentrating on the number of accomplishments in the first year of the transition gave Ryan the motivation he needed to keep pushing forward until a new client momentum finally began to build. And why Ryan still follows the words of his mentor that the key to being successful is being pleased and proud, but never satisfied. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Ryan Townsley. Welcome, Ryan Townsley, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you very much, Michael. It's good to be here. I really appreciate you joining us today, and and I'm looking forward to the conversation around, I guess, sort of interesting niches and specializations, and and the way we find them. You know, a lot. One, one of the themes we have often here on the podcast is is just the different ways that advisors are are trying to either specialize by their expertise or specialized by the particular types of clientele they they work with. And you know, for some of us, that's you know just a, a thing we want to do because it's out there. You know, historically, like advisors have spent a lot of time with niches in areas like doctors and dentists because they tend to be relatively high income professionals. So there's usually enough dollars there to make it a good business opportunity. But but some of us have niches that tie to something more more directly for us. You know, maybe it's it's a profession our family is in. I know a lot of advisors who like specialize in teachers because you know, their spouse is a teacher and their parents were teachers and their siblings were teachers. And they were like the one person who didn't become a teacher. They went to financial services. So they go and they specialize with teachers. But I, for a lot of advisors that come into the industry as a career changer, 
one of the ways that we find our, our specialization is I'm going to go serve the people from the industry that I left. And you know, some people do that because they're coming into the, the profession from technology and they form a niche with tech professionals or they come from like a particular company and they go and form a niche back to that company. I know you have a particularly unique path because as, as, well, as, as you listed on your website, the, the only wealth manager exclusively serving the nuclear power industry. That's correct. <laughs> And we'll have a link out to Ryan's website in the show notes. So uh, uh, this is episode 285. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 285, we'll have a link out to the website. But seriously, like the homepage says the only financial planning firm for nuclear professionals, and it's a picture of a nuclear power plant. And just I, like, I love it. You know, I know you, you, you've had a journey of coming from the nuclear power industry, going back to serve professionals in the, in the nuclear profession. And so I'm just... I'm excited both to talk about what to me is a really cool niche that I have not seen before, but also just this this journey of what it's like to go from a profession, career change into financial services, and then try to take that back to your former profession, your former professionals, and build a business around that. Yeah, it's been interesting, and it's been a great uh, – the transition has been amazing. You know, I like I had mentioned, I didn't think that – Financial services was not my initial career, and nor was it a thought. It wasn't something that I, you know, let's say always wanted to do or anything. It was, you know, something that came much later in life. So, yeah, making that transition, you know, from nuclear power plant professional to financial services to a financial advisor uh, has been a lot of fun, very challenging. Hopefully, I'll get to tell how interesting it was as well. I guess for for those of us just who are not really that familiar with with the nuclear world and the nuclear profession, like, can you just fill us in a little bit more? Like, what was your background in in, in the nuclear world? Like, what were you doing that then eventually led to moving into the financial services industry? Sure. So, um, I started in nuclear power when I joined the Navy right out of high school. So, I grew up in Baltimore. I really was kind of lost. I'd say when I was growing up, I did not know what I wanted to do for a living. I had no intention of going to college. I thought only people who could pay for college could go. I didn't even really know that you could take out loans. I know that sounds crazy, right? But even more reason that drove me to educate other people about finance. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it was right after you know 9-11. I was in 11th grade when that happened. And so I was looking for a way to do a couple things. I wanted to better my life I wanted to serve my country. I think that's important. I have other people in my family that have done the same. And uh, so I, the combination of that was me joining the military. And it wasn't like I, I went into the recruiter and said, I want to be a, a nuclear power plant operator. That wasn't it at all. Uh, when you <laughs> when you join the military, you you go and you you take a test. And, you know, depending on how you do, they kind of offer you different jobs. And I took the test. I did well. It's the ASVAB test. It's the entrance exam. And they asked me if I wanted to be a nuke, and I had no idea what that was uh, at all. And I asked the recruiter, I said, what is, what is that? I don't know what they, he said, I don't know, but I, I know they, they work on nuclear stuff and they make pretty good money. So they offered me $8,000 to do the job as a sign-on bonus, and I could not assign the paper any faster. <laughs> Next thing I know, I was off to the Navy, six-year commitment in the Navy. So two years of training in nuclear power school, which is in Charleston, South Carolina, and then four years in you know actual serving, which is uh, I was on the USS Harry S. Truman. The reason why is because aircraft carriers and submarines are nuclear powered. So I was trained and then operating a nuclear power plant on a U.S. aircraft carrier. 
So I guess I'm just curious that going back, so you 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 had a high school degree, had not gone off to 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 college yet. And so the military is giving some kind of aptitude test to you when you're like fresh out of high school and has figured out you'd be a good nuclear engineer? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they, they give you a test. It's called the ASVAB. It's pretty standard. You know, you have to score, and I can't remember the exact numbers where I think you had to score like an 89 uh, out of 100 and above to be able to be in the nuclear program. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but I scored pretty well. I scored above that. And they just kind of offered it to me. Yeah. So uh, after that, like I said, they, they, you know, it's a lot of background checks because there's security clearance and things like that involved. And eventually I ended up going down to Charleston to train at the uh, Naval Nuclear Power School, which is a, about an 18 month long program. So it's kind of like a college degree minus all of the upfront things like English and uh, humanities and things like that, right? It's pretty much just your sciences, physics, calculus, things like that. So, so you spent six years in service, and then what happened? What happened next? So, I finished my degree, my bachelor's degree, while I was in, and it was uh, at Thomas Edison, and it was a nuclear engineering technology degree. And I was really fortunate because, well, one, the military paid for it all, which is was a fantastic benefit, but. Also, all of my training, so all of my schooling at Naval Nuclear Power School counted towards the degree. So really, all I had to take was, you know, the, the things I just mentioned, right? So I, I got my, finished my degree, and then I got out, and I went to commercial nuclear power. So my first stop was a commercial nuclear power plant in New Jersey. And then I eventually, after working there for a couple of years, I settled at the, the my final plant, which was in Pennsylvania. So I worked in the commercial nuclear power. So pretty much the same thing I was doing before in the military. But now it was to power homes and businesses rather than to power, you know, a naval ship. And so what like what do you do? I mean, just like what was your what was your actual work in the in the power in the power plant? I mean, just like is this a management job? Is this a like I'm I know my sheer ignorance, the professional, like doing nuclear equations to like <laughs> make sure that nothing's going to blow up. I mean, just like what like what was the nature of the role? Sure. So there's a lot of different departments and roles and things like that, just like at any power plant, but nuclear, you know, even more, right? It's a special and unique technology. So it's it's treated much different. So when I first got into commercial power, I was in radiation protection, which means I was in the department that measured and controlled radiation at the plant and also to protect the health and safety of the public, the neighbors and the people that live within the surrounding area of the plant. After that, so uh, I kind of moved up through various different roles, and then I was offered a chance to go become a senior reactor operator. So a senior reactor operator is a supervisor that works in the control room of the power plant. It's another 18 months of school. So the out of the, let's say, 800 to 1,000 people that work at the power plant, only a few dozen have what's called a, a, an, a nuclear regulatory commission license. It's a license from the government saying you can operate this plant by law. Uh, so I went through that training. So that was another 18 months, right? It was 18 more months of training, a lot of testing, written testing, testing in a simulator, which is basically a mock control room where they run all kind of different. You know, I was going to say, so I'm, I'm envisioning disaster, like, right? <laughs> let's pretend there's a meltdown. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I mean, so you start off slow when you're, when you're learning to do this, you start off with book work and you're learning how <laughs> systems work and things. But then when you work into the simulator, you, you know, you go anywhere from, hey, this little minor thing broke and you have to, you know, kind of combat that all the way up to, hey, by the way, none of your, nothing works. 
And that's the, that's the theme when you're in the simulator is you try to start a pump. It doesn't work. You have to go to the next one. You try to have, you know, try to use this system. It doesn't work. You have to go to the next one. Oh, by the way, this just caught on fire. Uh, so all of this training, right, is to basically make you not only be able to think on your feet, to be able to follow procedures, because there's a procedure for everything in nuclear, everything to be able to follow procedures and to be able to do what you have to do, no matter what, to protect your neighbors and your stakeholders, your, the health and safety of the public. I'm just, I'm just envisioning, uh, and I'm like totally nerding out here. Like I'm, I'm just like, my head is going to Star <laughs> Trek and the Kobayashi Maru exercise where you, you, you have to save a disaster scenario. That's a no win scenario. Cause they just want to see how you deal in stressful, no win scenarios. Oh, absolutely. So what was it that got you to a point of like your, your, you're moving up through the the nuclear power world. You've spent six years in service, ten plus years in a in a power plant, getting to the point where you're, you know, in a leadership position in the control room and have your NRC license and like and you know we're on the financial advisor success podcast. So there was <laughs> a there was a hard left turn here someplace. So like what what changed or moved that we're we're having this conversation today? Yeah, it was um it was interesting and it was very gradual to some to some degree. So I had a GI bill from the Navy that I wanted to use. I did not want it to go to waste. Uh okay. the GI bill is your they will pay for your education. And since I got my bachelor's degree while I was active duty, which was paid for, my GI bill could be used for anything. So a graduate degree or whatever it might be. And just for the sake of you know, broadening my horizons and bettering myself and not getting, you know, rounding, say, rounding yourself out a little bit more. I decided to go back for business and, you know, finance and economics and get an MBA. Right? Okay. Because I had done so much technical work to that point. I figured I needed to learn the business side of the business, right? Um, to okay. be able to, to be better at it. So I went back to night school, basically, while I was working, I would you know, go to school at night or take online classes. And I started getting an MBA. And I'll be honest with you, Michael, like that did it for me. That's when I realized that I loved everything about finance. You didn't realize you had an interest in finance until you started the MBA program and then went, oh, this is really neat. Yeah. So that at least sparked the interest. Then that would carry over into conversations with people at work. So we would be talking and talking to much of the more, let's say, seasoned employees, like the people who had been there for a very long time, and got to talking with them about you know their retirement and what they were doing financially and how much they had saved. And that's kind of coming out of the Navy, growing up poor, going through the Navy where you don't make a whole lot of money, and then coming out and hearing what some of these people, the fortunes they had amassed just by saving, right? They, they make good money, but not astronomical, right? They get, the industry pays very well, but just by saving, just by putting away that X amount of dollars, every paycheck in their 401k and, you know, you know, just being disciplined and things, the, the money that they were able to save by the time, you know, they were in their fifties and sixties and ready to retire. That just, that fascinated me. I was, I was in hook, line and sinker. And I said, I, this is, a, this is incredible, especially coming from a background where, you know, my, my parents weren't savers. We didn't have any money. Like I said, we didn't have money for college, any of that. And I said, I can break that cycle just by taking what I'm learning, not only in school, but what I'm learning by all these really smart people here 
and I can and I can make my life different. And I can make my family's life different in the future. So it was kind of a like a ping pong ball. I would go to school and I would learn something, and I would come in and I would tell you know someone about it, and we'd talk about it, and then they would tell me something, and I'd go back and and it was just the just a thirst for knowledge at that point where I could not get enough. I just wanted to, much like all of the different learning I had done to that point, but it was all technical. Now I was as involved in learning in finance and investing and, and that whole side. But I'm struck, like you, it's it's not like you were doing a, a an, an MBA that was crossing over for a financial planning program or like a, a dual MBA financial planning degree. You, you, this was just general MBA school, but you were liking the personal finance side of it? Loved it. Yeah, exactly. It was it was general MBA. It was not for financial planning. And at this point, I I really did not have any intention of making it a career. It was really like a really cool hobby. I said, if I can have a hobby where I can also make money or help other people, I think this would be great, right? That's the best kind of hobby. It doesn't cost me any money. I'm you know investing doesn't cost you anything. It should in the long run pay you dividends and and pay you, you know, exponentially. So what happened is basically I at that point I kind of was wrapping up my degree and I kind of just on my own then took it to a whole new level. Like I was reading at one point, you know, a book or two a week and I would be watching seminars and speeches and I kind of was just engulfed in this world of just learning more and more and more about personal investing and finance. And a lot of it was, I wouldn't say selfish, but a lot of it was for me to be able to plan for my own. But that just naturally carried into conversations with people, you know, at, at you know, when I was in nuclear, right? You know, so what would happen is people would kind of come to me. I kind of became the, the finance guy, right. uh, you know, the go-to person unofficially, right? This was not a business at this point. It was really just, hey, Ryan, what do you think about this? Or... Uh, what do you think about that? And just being able to, to just help people. And that goes back to a theme of just service, right? Service is important to me. It was important when I was in the Navy. It's important for me to be able to help people with really no, you know, no expected, you know, return or anything like that, right? So this went on for years and years. And eventually, Michael, somebody, somebody said, why don't you just do this for a living, you seem every time you talk about this, every time we have a conversation, I'd never see you don't ever get this excited about splitting atoms. <laughs> you, get, you get excited about this. Why don't you do it for a living? And it was kind of like in a movie scene where like the DJ stops the music. Uh-huh. It like goes quiet. Scratch moment. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was my that was my big moment. That was my big inflection point where I said that I this could be possible. So. So it was some. It was someone else saying to you, like, "Have you ever thought about just doing this for a living?" That was like, "Oh, no, I actually hadn't thought about it." But now <laughs> that you mention it, like, hmm, exactly right, exactly. It was. I had not thought about it to that level. I didn't think that I had accrued that much uh, expertise or that much, you know, good information yet, or definitely just not enough. I figured that financial planners, they number one, went to school for it. Too, they had done it for a living for a very long time. Most of that is true, right? So, yeah, when somebody said, "Why don't you do it for a living?" I, I kind of went home and I was, I thought about it for weeks, and I was like, uh, "Is this possible? Do I have enough expertise, or could I attain enough?" Right? I know I can learn at this point. I'd been through multiple different nuclear power training programs that were very demanding, and it wasn't because of any natural intelligence. I just, I can study, 
I'll put in the hours. I'll do whatever it takes to to pass, right? Because, uh, you know, that's important to me. So what came next? Like, how do you get from someone has suggested this and you're kind of thinking about it to actually doing a transition and make a leap? Like, what was your what was your path or process to figure out like, okay, how do I actually do this if I'm going to do this? I'd say it was uh, months and months of research, just looking at, you know, what's the best way to make a transition? Who are the most transition friendly companies? What, you know, how much can I afford? Because uh, obviously it's going to be a pay cut, right? As as it should be. I am I am have been doing nuclear power at that point for, let's say 12 to 13 years and I had multiple licenses and a degree in it, I deserve to get a pay cut going to somewhere where I'm not uh, as educated and don't have as much experience. So am I able to do that personally, right, for my family? And after going through all that, I really just decided to do it. So I I went ahead and I, I joined a firm. It's one of the large ones. I don't, you know, I'll leave the name out of it, but one that are they're pretty famous for career transitioners. And I kind of started going through their training program uh, and, you know, learning and getting my, you know, Series 7 and 66 licenses and going through all that process. So talk to us more about just how you, I guess, how you prepared the transition or when you decided it was time to actually do the transition. I think the the time, like when I decided it was time to do it was when I had validated what this person had kind of, you know, the, the interest that, or what they had, what they had brought up to me, right? You know, they told, they asked me if I had ever considered doing it for a living and I'd thought about it for a long time. And so I kind of tried to be aware of that. Like, am I happier when I'm talking finance, when I'm talking about investments, when I'm talking about, you know, saving and, and, you know, being able to retire. And so I was kind of really maybe watching myself for a long time to see, is this true? Right. Or is this just one person's observation? Right. Because in, in the nuclear power world or any engineering world, you never go off of one data point. You always have to validate, right? Right. Uh, so this is not, especially being an engineer myself, is not a decision I'm going to take lightly. It's something that I am going to probably put myself in analysis paralysis for a very long time before I can actually make the leap. But when I do, if I do, and when I do, I'm going to know that it's right. Well, I guess that's part of what I'm wondering. Like, how did it not just get stuck in analysis paralysis forever? Like, why Why are you not in the sixth year of analyzing whether this career <laughs> change would, would work? My wife is the anti-engineer, and she told me to just do it. <laughs> and I trust her. <laughs> That's it. That's Interesting. it. No, I, honestly, she is, um, she is every <laughs> – we're polar opposites in a very good way. And, you know, when I need a nudge, she can give me a nudge. And when she needs more information than she would ever want it, I can give her that. All right. So we're, we're a good combination. No, it, in all seriousness, though, she, she was the motivation because the support of, hey, I don't care what happens, you know, do it. Chase your dream. Give it a try. We can always go back. You're not going to be banned from the industry. So just, you know, follow your dream. Well, it's, a, it's an interesting point that, like, particularly, I guess, in a, in a, in a profession like yours, where you were coming from, you've got all these credentials, you've got all these licenses. There are not a lot of people who who have accomplished those. So, like, worst case scenario, you go and try to start an advisory business and it doesn't work out. You can go back to the nuclear industry. You're still highly employable. 
Yeah, absolutely. I and you know I I believe very much in keeping up relationships and not burning bridges, and those things are important. Yeah, I I knew I could go back, um, but I didn't. I, in a way, I don't I don't know if that was that may have been something that was a deterrent to a little bit because I, I said, I don't want to try to, I don't want to have to rely on that, or I don't want to have that in the back of my mind because that means that it's okay to fail. And mm. I don't want to fail. I'm not going to fail. So therefore, if I'm going to commit to this, you know, I'm going to give this everything I have and I'm going to do it the right way from the start and I'm going to be successful. And it was really wasn't a question after that. It was just a, how long it would take to get there. So then talk to us a little bit more about how did you get how did you get going in the transition like what how did you decide what firm to join or where to go when you wanted to get started yeah so when i went to to the firm that i started with it was i didn't know really where to go they were seemed to be the most friendly for people who were making career changes who were making the the types of transitions that i was making it was a decent salary to start with there was what seemed to be a good amount of training that's it's was an easy decision at that point. And I'll be honest, there weren't a whole lot of people knocking down the door to say, let's hire this person who, you know, has been working in the control room of a nuclear power plant for, you know, all these years to go be a financial advisor. Like and I wouldn't I don't blame them because typically the engineer types are introverts, right? And it's not the kind of person that's gonna walk up and, you know, try to start a conversation and or or talk to a new prospect or right. or, you know, follow up as often as they should, because naturally, you know, engineers are the type of people who, you know, have minimal conversation with the least amount of people. And, you know, there's definitely extroverts in in the field and, and things, but I'd say the vast majority of people are are introverts, right? So I don't blame any, you know, firm for not Taking, you know, just because I had all these credentials in nuclear does not make me an automatic candidate to be a good financial advisor. So, so I guess you like you went for the training and the salary base. So did that, you know, did that come to fruition for you? I mean, did it work out as expected? No, I was I knew very quickly that it was not the right move. And that's no disrespect to where I went or anything. It was really just I at that point, that's the first time. And it was early, right? It was early in the journey. It was the first time where I started questioning my decision. And I said, is this, is this it? Is this, is this what I, what I really wanted to, to transition into? And the reason why was really, it was, it was very sales-based. It was very investment heavy, right? Not a whole lot of planning. And it was just had all of the things where it, I did not want to run my business like that. Right. There was a lot of reward, let's say, for the number of accounts you could open rather than the quality of the accounts or the quality of service you were providing. And that just didn't resonate with me. Like that just did not sit well. So not long after, very soon after, I said, you know what, I'm just gonna do it myself and I'm gonna start my own firm with really at that point still generally no experience in the industry. So I, I'm just curious. Can I ask, like, where where was it that you had landed for this journey? Because I'm 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 sure others are going to be going through the same journey and trying to oh, figure sure. out, like, yeah. where what where where should you start, or where at least should should you not start if those kinds of metrics are not the metrics you want to be working towards? Yeah, of course. It was it was Edward Jones. I've seen more and more 
offices pop up, especially over the past couple of years. It might be that I pay attention more now, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I definitely see more and more offices. I see more uh, postings. I see more people out. Ever Jones is famous for door knocking. They, they love to go door to door and knock on doors, and that's how you get prospects. Okay, I guess I'm just wondering, did, were you thinking about starting your own firm originally? Did did that only become apparent as an option later? Like, How did you end out in the path of, I'm going to join a large firm, and then not long thereafter say, eh, maybe I'm just going to hang my own shingle as opposed to going, to going to find a different large firm or some other environment? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say that the thought never crossed my mind at first. I said, not, not only am I trying to get into a new industry, but I'm going to just start a firm myself. Like that's crazy. So no, like that never crossed my mind. But what I realized was in going through and going over to Edward Jones was that a lot of the things that we were learning and the processes and, and the tools that there were, were not the ones where I could, the things I could have used to provide the most value based on all the conversation I, I had had with people. Right. So it was very light on planning. It was more, hey, here's some great stocks and here's some great bonds. Whereas your colleague conversation when you were talking to people in the nuclear industry, like it was not the what stocks and funds are you buying conversations. It was it was other more planning style conversations. Yeah, it was like, how much should I be saving? Should I be doing Roth traditional or a mix of both? What do you think about insurance? Okay. Uh, do I need this much? I mean, those were the types of questions. You know, what's what's better, a will or a trust? Right? Those are the types of questions that we were talking about, and the things that I would go, I would go research to, you know, to nauseum. Right at that point, right. after we would have the conversation and come back and and talk about it, and we talked about none of that. So your your training was much more just focused around investment accounts, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, like where are you putting in investment accounts? Correct. And it was at that point where I started researching. I said, okay, I need to learn. I think I know all of the things I need to do for people. And I think I know all of the the you know touch points we need to have and all of the areas of their life that we need to evaluate and talk about. I think I do, but I'm not sure. Uh, so I need to go research again. <laughs> it's a theme to this, right? And and educate myself and learn. And that's kind of where I, you know, through my search to the end of the internet, found XYPN and Kitsis.com and yeah. podcasts and, and blogs and, you know, webinars and all of the things that, you know, the great content that's produced. Okay. And and so, so I guess it, it, that was the point where you decided okay, rather than go to another larger firm, like I, I'm seeing other, I'm seeing other people who've just hung their own shingle and done this on their own. Maybe I can just go that route. Exactly. I knew I was teachable. I knew I could learn and I knew the resources were out there. So all I had to do was find the right ones and then commit it to memory and pretty much adopt it as my own and make the put the nuclear spin on it right and develop procedures and processes and things to recreate these great experiences for people so at that point starting my firm it it was more than a possibility it was the only option interesting so so then what came i, I guess what came next like you're you're still at edward jones but realizing that you probably need to make a a transition and do something different like had you were you already getting clients from 
the nuclear industry or had you not even really gotten going yet? Like, I don't know not, how, how long, not a were. single client, <laughs> not, a got single it <laughs> not a single client while I was there Be, because you weren't there that long or just cause it was, it took no, a while I, to get I going. I probably could have, I don't know. I think it was, I think it, I had already kind of known that I did not want to bring anyone there. So I made the decision quickly. I did the right thing. You know, I didn't just hang out for the pay. I, I, I left uh, and I dedicated the next couple months to starting my firm and learning and putting in place all of our policies, procedures, and the way I wanted to do business and the way I wanted to, the experience I wanted people to have to come there and, you know, a repeatable process. And I, so I spent months and months coming up with basically nuclear power plant type procedures and things like that for this is exactly the, you know, the workflows that we're going to go through. And here's the, all of the things that's going to be in, included in a comprehensive financial plan. I, cause I knew I wanted to do that from the beginning. I, I just, I just knew that the most value was given to people, not by investments, right? Investments, part of it. It's an important part of it, but value comes in many different areas. And when you add it all up, when you add value in taxes, when you add value in estate planning, when you add value in education and all these different areas, uh, the compound effect and the stress relief that you can take off of someone knowing that they've made some really significant improvements for their family and their financial future was, it was key to me. So now help us understand a little more, like what is it, what does it mean to have a specialization back to nuclear professionals? I mean, like, so when I think at a high level, there's oversimplifying a little, there's, there's sort of two, two styles of niches that are out there. One is, this is a group that has some really specific needs. So I'm going to do like things that are really specific to them and their issues. And then there's another version of, of niching that is, look, like, you know, their needs aren't necessarily that different. Like they're going to retire. Everybody retires, like retirement planning is retirement planning. But I, I just, I know the, I know the group and I know their language and I know how to talk to them. It's like the planning might not be that different, but I can talk their language or relate to them. And so that's what drives the niche. So, when you're doing this back to nuclear professionals, like is it is it actually a different like planning process and planning issues, or is it more of I just I know how to relate to them and talk their language, and that's what's making it work? Well, Michael, it's definitely both. There are, you know, it, every company out there is reducing benefits. It seems right in in one way or another, but most utilities have or have had some form of pension, whether it be a cash balance or you know, your your typical defined benefit pension. Utilities, also some of them do have like a retiree medical program. So like being able to participate in a medical program pre-65. Like, so if someone wants to retire, you know, at 59 or 60 or and participate in a, and basically okay, like a so they, they've got program. a They've got a basically like a, a, a bridge program from early retirement to age 65. Medicare is common for them. That's correct. Yeah. And okay. then they also, you know, some also do have some sort of stipend to help out with post 65 with like Medigap costs and, and things like that. So there, there's definitely logistics to it. You know, there's very, there's specifics, you know, whether it be the pension, the medical or, but then there's also, you know, I understand 
more than what I believe any other advisor out there. And, you know, I'm sure one day I won't be able to hold the title as the only financial advisor serving, you uh, well, know, simply nuclear power. If there's any <laughs> other advisor out there also working in the nuclear industry, like, I'm I'm sorry, the two of you are going to have to get together at some point. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I would love, I would love that. No, but there's, um, there's also, you know, I know what it took for you to, to make your money. I know mm. how difficult it was for you to do what you did for 30 or 40 years. Cause I'll tell you, it's a, it's a demanding industry. A lot of it is, you know, nuclear power is a 24 seven operation. Right. Uh, so it's shift work. I've worked, I worked years and years of shift work, weekends, night shifts, holidays, birthdays, Christmas, you name it. That's not easy. And although it does pay well, right, the, the pay is very good. That's still hard. That doesn't make it less hard when you're away from your family on a right. holiday because you have to be there to, to, you know, the plant that I worked at powered two and a half million homes. Right? I mean, that's a lot of people and hospitals and businesses that depend on you. And it's, you know, again, goes back to my theme of service where I understand what it took for you to be able to save the money you saved and what you had to endure. And I respect that because I did it. And and at the same time, just it is an industry with above average pay, relatively stable pay people who have very long careers earning that good pay. So just as I'm visioning, like fairly well, fairly naturally conducive to people who actually accumulate some pretty good sized dollar amounts of wealth savings by the time they're ready to retire. Absolutely. If you look at, you know, not just, you know, 401k, the benefits are great. Uh, you have your your different types of pensions, but it is the a place where a person without a college degree, because a lot of you know the operators didn't have college degrees, they are starting to require it a little more for anyone coming into the industry, but could amass a multi-million dollar fortune just basically by working and saving. And that to me is amazing. And that's that's what keeps me going. So I guess walk us through what the process actually looks like. Like as you've as you've done this and and built it out with the with the focus, and I'm, I'm sure I've iterated on it in the in the years since. Like, if I'm becoming a client of the advisory firm now, like, how does this actually work? Right. So, my wish from the beginning was to never make someone feel like they were in any type of sales process, and I'm confident that that I achieved that. Uh, when people come, we don't even talk about becoming a client for many, many meetings. And really, I try to wait for them to initiate it. I know sometimes just with the nature of people from, you know, that are engineer mindsets and things, you do have to, you know, at least encourage making a transition or whatever. But for me, it's, I always wanted people to feel as if there was really no other choice, right? So I always encourage them to go talk to multiple other advisors. I'd even hand out a sheet that says, these are some questions you should ask them. And hey, here's how we feel about those questions, right? Like here's here's our here's our take. Here's here's our thoughts and here's what you should ask them. And we would meet, you know, I'd meet with people four, five, six times, maybe for, you know, over the course of months and things before we ever even really talked about the logistics of becoming a client because I really wanted to be wanted it to be a natural progression. It was easier than I think most to build trust because when someone came in, they typically were a referral or someone that was from the industry that we knew. It's a very small industry. So even if you don't know the person, you know someone who knows them. Right, right. So, you know, the the trust was already there more than, let's say, starting with someone 
you know, just off the street. But I never took that for granted. I never wanted that to be, well, this is, I'm going to rely on this. Therefore, I can speed up the process because the trust is already built and I can bring in assets quicker. It was never like that. So I guess is what, like, what does the, what does the meeting process look like? I guess all the way back when they're prospects, if, if you can have like four, five, six meetings with someone before they're a client, like, what are you, what are you doing for them that early on in the process? I guess like, maybe even just taking back to the star, like I reach out to say, Hey Ryan, you know, I'm a, I'm a nuclear professional. I've heard from everyone else in the plant that apparently you're the, you're the go-to, <laughs> you're the guy. So I'm calling you're like, right. what happens? But like what happens all, first? It all starts with discovery. So really, you know, have a meeting, have them in, in, in office, or as we all learned during COVID to do virtual, um, which was, you know, just that part of it was a, a bit of a blessing because it definitely opened up, you know, my, ability to serve a broader audience, but just, you know, discovery at that point. And really the first meeting is I don't ask for statements or anything like that. You can bring them if you want to, because at some point I may need them if we decide to progress, but it's, it's conversation, 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 and it's just natural. Let's just talk. Just tell me about your life. Tell me what scares you. Like when you think about retiring, what worries you, what keeps you up at night? When you think about retiring, what makes you happy? Like what, what are your aspirational goals? Like if you could have anything in the world, what would it be? And those are literally the kinds of questions that you're you're asking. Like, tell me about what scares you about retirement and when you think about retiring, what makes you happy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it doesn't have to be down to a level of detail at that point, right? Because really I'm just trying to learn about them and trying to see kind of what makes them tick, what concerns do we need to address prior to you know, them making a major life change because retirement's probably the biggest life change people make after having kids and buying a home, right? And then they go many, many, many years of working and then this big life change comes, right? So expecting someone to be comfortable with that after a meeting or two, I think is unrealistic. So just learning about them and and what they want to do and what they're scared of is the most important thing of our first one or two meetings. That also gives me an opportunity to kind of triage what I think is the most important thing we should work on. So where do we start? So we go through the first meeting, like you're, you're asking me these questions about, you know, retirement and what's going on with, it sounds like sort of a, a focus of trying to get to, I know I always think of this as the, the why, why now question, like something made you decide to be, to, to reach out to a financial planner such that we're having this meeting. So like something's going on in your life that you got it, you want to deal with. So to me, like the, the focus of this meeting is basically to answer the why now question. Like what is going on that has made you feel like you need to get help that we need to make sure we address first and foremost. Absolutely. And, and then also, and I learned this, I'd say relatively recently is why now? Like, why are you asking now? Why didn't, why not six months from now or why not five years ago or, but what made you, finally pull the trigger and at least make a call or send an email. Why do you want to talk about this now? And that question brings up a lot of different answers, right? It might, you know, all anywhere from I'm just tired of working to um, maybe my, my health isn't so great anymore and I don't want to spend it, my time at work or that it could be, there's so many different possibilities, but that really opens up the why behind anything in life, in my opinion, is the important. I mean, the, the what you're doing, yes, that matters, but the why behind it is just something in my life that I've always 
either wanted to know for the decisions I was making, but also for other people as well. Because if you know the why behind something, uh, you really, really can make an impact by addressing that why rather than the what. So, so how does this meeting end? Because it sounds like you're you're not necessarily asking them to make a decision to become a client at the end of the first meeting, but there are follow on meetings. So, just like how does this end? What what are you communicating or like setting as expectations or explaining as process for them to to know that there's supposed to be another meeting and what they're supposed to do in the next meeting? Sure. So at that point, I think it's, um, you know, if, if we think it's worth moving forward a little, you know, when I say moving forward, I don't mean becoming a client at that point either. Basically moving forward as in you'd like to see what the next part of the process looks like. Uh, at that point, it's a little bit of logistics, right? Let's exchange some information. Let's do some, you know, some risk tolerance questionnaires and things like that, which most of which I send and let them do on their own time. Just in, instead of using valuable meeting time to exchange documents and things, there's technology, technology allows us to do it much more efficiently now. And and what's your risk tolerance questionnaire of choice? So this is where things, uh, Michael, things get a little interesting. So the nuclear power plant professional in me requires redundancy because that's nuclear power plants require that. So if, if a nuclear plant needs so one pump to there's pull There's more something, than one risk tolerance question, <laughs> there is, isn't there? There is. There is. Clients are a fan of it. And when I explain to them why. If I told that to anyone outside of the engineer type, they probably think I'm crazy. Right. But redundancy, I need that and they need that. We all need that with that kind of mindset. So I use two. I use, um, it's now Tiffin Risk. It was Totem. And I also use Riskalyze. So I use them both. Say one, how do you distinguish between them of like why why those two? I mean, even if you're going to do two, like. Right, right. I like that, that Tiffin does risk capacity. So it kind of puts you in a band rather than just this is your risk number and this is it. It maps your risk tolerance and your risk capacity and then gives you, okay, this is kind of a band where maybe you should fall in between. Right? Okay. And then I like Riskalyze because it's a little deeper and a little easier to maybe enter a portfolio. So if I can, you know, if I enter in, let's say someone's portfolio that they have now, it's very easy for me to see where it falls compared to their risk tolerance and are they out of line. I think the interesting thing comes up is when they don't agree. Most I was going to say, they, do they ever not agree? <laughs> like what happens when they don't agree? Sometimes. And then, so then at that point, I like to dig in and this is super nerdy, but, and see which questions they answer differently because the, they're similar, but they're, they're a little different. Um, so to see where the deviation started, and this is probably the engineer and the analysis uh, you know, type in me that wants to see why. So I'll, I'll dig in, I'll, I'll open up their actual questionnaire and see, okay, they answered this for this question, but on this one, they answered a little different. Why is, was it asked a little, you know, in, in a strange way or, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about it, right? Because the risk tolerance questionnaire for me is a starting point, the conversation about it right. and the presentation of different portfolio options and what their pros and cons are is the only thing that matters, right? It, that the risk tolerance questionnaire gives us a place to start to have a conversation, but there, it's a whole, we almost have like a whole meeting just on this alone. That's more important to me. So I'm, when I'm struck by your comment that the goal is like you send this between the meetings because you want to get this stuff out of the way between the meetings. So in the actual meeting, you can have the conversation about it and focus exactly. the conversation. Exactly. So what, what other information, I guess, are you 
exchanging or collecting? Because you, you said like after this first meeting, there's the let's exchange some information. So part of this is a, is doing a risk tolerance questionnaire. What like what else are you collecting or doing after meeting number one? So I'll send out a, a precise FP, basically a quick data gathering for logistics stuff, name, address, birthday, uh, things like that. It also has a place to upload. So I asked for pension statements, you know, 401k statements, any life insurance, any estate planning docs, things like that. Basically, you know, get a lot of the the data gathering done prior to that second meeting. So that way, I just, I like to have meetings be all about the client and talking and have them talking instead of let's share this or let's look at this, your portfolio on paper. Um, I like to have things ready. So when they come in, I've already kind of done the work and I can just present rather than trying to analyze something live time, which just is not a possibility for me. Right. Right. I, the I'm going to presume the kind of the the engineering genes kick in at this point, like Correct. M- must have thoroughly analyzed before must we ever have a conversation ha- have, about right. this. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So so is that the primary pieces kind of in this in-between meeting number one and meeting number two, data gathering with precise FP, two risk tolerance questionnaires with Tiffin risk and risk because you explain we do things with redundancies here. You all understand this is nuclear professional, so everyone's on board. Is that kind of everything that happens between meeting number one and meeting number two? It is. It is. So, so then what's meeting number two? Like, What are you doing or covering in that meeting? So it is different for everyone because based off of what we talked about in meeting one, there could be different priorities. So if somebody has like a burning you know, question or priority or, or like a problem that they need solved immediately, we'll work on that. But those are the one-offs. So generally at that point, let's say we're talking about retirement, which is why most people come. At that point, the second meeting is for me to show them different options. And this is what I love about the process is I, I tell everyone, I'm not prescribing you a retirement. I'm not telling you this is what your retirement is. This is how much you can spend and this is what you can do and here's what it's going to look like and thank you very much and are you ready to become a, you know, a client? That's it is let's go over some different options and you tell me which one you love the most or the two that you love the most and we'll get rid of the rest and we'll focus on that those that one or two and we'll refine that and make that one better and better. Uh, so those options might be retiring early, retiring later, and what the spending differences are, what the trade offer that is, moving to a different state or staying in the state where you are right now, you know, spending more earlier in life, which is really the, and when we could talk to, about this for hours and hours, realistic spending plans rather than you can spend X amount of your portfolio per year for the rest of your life adjusted for inflation. So, but at that point, the second meeting is all about presenting different opportunities for the client and letting them tell me or show me, uh, whether it be through body language or you know smiles or whatever it might be, which one that they, they are leaning towards. So does that mean in addition to gathering data with Precise FP and, and doing the risk tolerance questionnaires that, that you're actually plugging a bunch of this data into some financial planning software to start doing this analysis work? That's correct. That's correct. So I'm plugging so what it are into you, what are you plugging guide? into? So okay. <laughs> it'll get it'll get interesting again. So I use Money Guide Pro, but I also use Income Lab. So I use both because I think they have different strengths. Okay. So so tell me about those two. Like what's what's going on with each? So Money Guide Pro is fantastic at 
you know, having a very, very comprehensive picture of their plan. It includes, you can include life insurance and then it does life insurance analysis. It does a state. I use the elite version, which is a little more detailed. So you can, you can model annuities and you can, there's a lot of things you can do a money guide pro, but one thing that it lacks, which I thought, you know, income lab fills the hole for is actually coming up with a cost of living or a, or a income increase or a guardrail approach to you know someone's portfolio so i, so I use like them, the I, actual I, cash flow like the actual cash flow distribution strategies if you beyond just i'm going to take eighty thousand dollars a year absolutely we we go very very deep into cash flow because in my mind it this is all one big complicated math equation so the better equation we use the more detail, the more accurate data we put into the equation, the better result we're going to get. So it's not just you can spend this much money this year and 3% raise next year and so on and so forth. It's let's talk about the first 10 years of retirement and tell me everything you want to do. And let's build a realistic cash flow plan for that because I want you to spend the most money in your first 10 years because statistically, that's when you're going to or at least want to. You have your health, you have your energy. And you know, statistically, you're just going to start to slow down in your 70s and then even more in your 80s, right? Let's front load this retirement so you can get all of these things going that you wanted to do and take these trips or buy this beach house or whatever it might be, if you can, right? If we can make that happen. Instead of just, hey, you can spend this much money per year and I'll see you next year. So help us understand a little more just because a lot of advisors are familiar with with Money Guide Pro. I, I suspect relatively few are familiar with Income Labs. They're they're a bit of a newer player. Just can you explain to us a little bit more? Just what like what does Income Lab do, or like what does Income Lab do that Money Guide Elite is not doing? Sure. So uh, Income Lab it takes and it it projects based off of research a realistic retirement spending. So instead of just you know. Four like using the four percent rule and adjusting for inflation, it actually takes a look at and uses basically a, they call it retirement smile or retirement hatchet. You're very familiar with this yep. and front loads the retirement so you can theoretically look at spending the most money in your early years when you want to. On top of that, it runs those through different historical you know historical analyses. So you know let's run your retirement as if you retired in 1872, and then let's do 1921 and every year in between and all the way up through the the seventies, and you get to see what the the actual withdrawal rates that the client could have sustained had they started retirement in that year. And for me, that showing that graph has had the biggest impact on my clients and their comfort level going into retirement. Show, showing them the actual like with this retirement spending plan, here's what would have happened if you retired in 1921, or well, I'm presuming more like. Or 1929, right before the Great Depression, and like in the 1970s during the stagflation. So, like showing them those kinds of here's actual historical scenarios. Absolutely, because I, t- I tell everyone when they sit with me is we cannot predict the future, but what I can tell you is that the future probably will look somewhat like the past. So, if we are can use math and recreate retirement scenarios. That your retirement, over the course of different pieces of history, we at least know that you could have been 
find during those, or these were the adjustments that needed to be made during those different, you know, historical time periods. So if, if some event comes in the future, we'll at least have a plan for it, right? We, we don't know exactly what, what the future is going to bring us, but we do know that it will probably be something like what this graph that we're looking at. So knowing this, if I can show you that had you retired in all of these really bad time periods, you still could have spent this much amount of money and you still could have spent way more in your 60s and kind of took, you know, down to this level in your 70s and down to this level in your 80s. It, it just, you can see the relief, right? You can see kind of the weight come off the shoulders and, oh, wow. So this really is possible. This isn't just a hypothetical, you know, math calculation. This is actually going through history and showing me that this could have been possible through all these really bad times. And, and that, that has made an impact in comfort level for, for my clients. So I guess income lab relative to, to money guide, it sounds like the, the big distinctions here is like easier ability to do not level spending, like just front loading it more and having a dial down later. I mean, I guess you can sort of do that in money guide by having like a goal for retirement and then like an extra goal for the extra spending in the first part of retirement. But I'm, I'm presuming just income labs making it easier for you to, to show that and model that. And then having output that shows here's how you would have performed in various actual historical scenarios. Absolutely. And those two combined, again, it's the it's the redundancy built into the plan that um, anyone from nuclear would love, is showing those two combined and showing how they interact and how they, you know, if the, the plans are, I build the same plan in both of them. So if both of them are saying that it's going to be successful, that just builds even more confidence. And I do exactly what you're talking about in Money Guide. I do a base level of, of spending. I do a Medicare, a medical costs, but then I'll add in, let's say for the first 10 years, heavy travel, and then I'll add in fun money. And then for the, the following 10 years, so let's say they retire at 60, you know, at 70, I'll make it medium travel and I'll reduce that amount a little bit. And so I'm building exactly that in there, the realistic retirement projections, and then using Income Lab to back it up. And I know that sounds crazy and advisors are probably out there like, why are you doing all this work? Well, basically it's because not only do my clients expect it, but it kind of, it I need to. Like just, you know, the way that I'm wired, I have to do that. I have to convince myself. If I'm going to tell someone that they can stop working, uh, I want to be very sure. So if that takes two programs to do that, and it takes me extra time, I'm 100% okay with that because it's just the way I am. And so I'm presuming like this is just sheer double data entry for you. I mean, you have to like build two plans. Basically. It, it, like they don't, they don't integrate or anything. The data doesn't flow from one to the other. They don't integrate, but you, the, as far as, you know, being able to use, let's say, account aggregation software to automatically bring in the accounts and, and the, you know, the asset allocation inside of them and things like that, that saves a ton of time. So not as much time as you may think because... A lot they, of it can be brought in automatically. And they both have account aggregation? Correct. I guess that means you still have to tell the clients to do their aggregation to do to two different systems? It uses, so you can use Yodely with both of them. I don't know about it, you know, for anybody who uses like buy all accounts or anything, I'm not sure. Okay. But I, I know that that works with both. Okay. I guess the other thing I'm I'm really curious about is, do you still use and leverage the Monte Carlo analysis in Money Guide Pro, because I'm cognizant, like 
Monte Carlo came from the nuclear industry originally. <laughs> like that was the the original application was like, I mean, basically they were trying to figure out if they set off nuclear chain reactions if the whole world was going to blow up. So they right. were they were modeling it with with Monte Carlo. Like that's that that's the origin. So like is is Monte Carlo analysis like used, not used? Does that like actually resonate with <laughs> nuclear professionals? How do you think about Monte Carlo analysis for Money Guide versus this, you know, m- income lab like specific historical scenarios? I like them both, and and the reason why is because it fits the personality of a nuclear worker perfectly. Right when you are working in that industry, you learn to always do have a parallel path for your for anything that you're working on. You have to look at contingencies ahead of time and be prepared for them. You have to look at, imagine yourself in the control room of a nuclear power plant during an emergency and only looking at one gauge and not validating that assumption prior to make taking an action. That would be a big failure, right? Because that okay. gauge could be broken and you could be doing a very consequential action based off a broken gauge. Uh, so you use two or three or, or as many as you can find to validate your assumptions. So being able to use both Monte Carlo, and by the way, when I share that fact with people, and I do, they they love it. But being able to use Monte Carlo alongside with historical to me is fulfilling that need to be able to, to that nuclear need to look at multiple indications. Interesting. Well, I, I like how you frame that, just that that mindset of, yeah, when you're in the nuclear industry, you literally have to get down to like, oh, that gauge looks fine. Doesn't matter. You need a second gauge to corroborate the first because otherwise, like, I'm, I'm sure I'm oversimplifying a little bit. Like, otherwise, you pull a lever and really bad things happen because it turns out the gauge is broken. Like, you you have to operate with a certain level of redundancies because the stakes are too high. And so if that's what you spend, if that's the mindset you spend your whole career with, then yeah, I guess I, I get it when you go to a nuclear engineer and say like, well, we're going to give you two risk tolerance questionnaires and then we're going to run your retirement plan through two completely independent sets of software that they would say like, wow, that's great. Thank you. They love it. Which is and not it- what most other clients <laughs> and probably no. advisors would think of. But like, <laughs> this is a way you show up for your specialized clientele is like that actually resonates for them in in how nuclear professionals have to approach things. Absolutely. And and it feels like I said it fills a need in them and it fills a need in me because I'm I'm built the exact same way as they are. And and just knowing that, you know, in in nuclear there's there's some certain traits. It's basically fundamentals that that are inherent in everyone who has to work in the industry and if you if you don't embrace the fundamentals you you don't belong there, but one of them is a questioning attitude, right? Having the type of attitude where you question everything. Because you have to. You question if that gauge is broken, should I look at another one? You question when you go out to do a job and it doesn't look the way that the procedure tells you it looks. So you question, am I on the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? Should I stop and ask someone? Because the consequences are too great to make a mistake. And and taking, you know, it's funny when I had conversations with people about where I came from and where I'm now. So I, I went from a nuclear power plant supervisor to you know, over to, to financial planning, they say that, well, that's a big leap. That's crazy. And to me, it's not. I think the, the transferable skills are are un, unbelievable. I mean, just what I brought from that industry, it taught me to be a good financial advisor before I even knew I wanted to be one. 
because it taught me attention to detail. It taught me how to analyze data. It taught me how to manage how to manage risk. It taught me how to be conservative. Uh, it taught me a lot of things that really I just brought to life in a financial planning firm. So this is it's this is a nuclear power plant, you know, <laughs> running basically running a financial firm, right? And, right, and we got to. I love that. Like CFP bar on the phone, let them know. Like you're you're missing a crossover opportunity (laughs) here in marketing CFP programs to nuclear professionals. I I did not realize the like the mindset alignment. That's really cool. I mean, just imagine like the you know the attention that you're taught to have attention to detail and to check everything two, three, four times before you actually take an action, right? So if you're going to turn a switch, you make sure that you're on the right one, and then you stop. You think about it. You look at it again and you make sure you're on the right one and then you take your action because, again, the consequences are too great. So when it comes to me doing planning, just as simple as filling out somebody's account paperwork, I'm looking at their account number three or four times before I hit submit um, because that's but, – but it keeps me from making the types of mistakes that I'd say the maybe – you know, not the average person would make, but I'd say that the error rate is lower just because now it takes me longer. It's a little inefficient, but I'm okay with that. So coming back to your meeting flow now, we're in meeting number two. And so now I'm following like, so you're, you're, well, you're, so you're presenting back results from two risk tolerance questionnaires and kind of talking about the implications of that. You're looking at sort of retirement plan scenario possibilities and showing them versions in, in income lab and in money guide to understand which, which works or hopefully both work. Cause we like the, you know, the belt and suspenders approach to risk management. So what else what else happens in meeting number two and and how does this meeting end? So it depends on how long because you could only have a i'd say have a good meeting for about an hour to an hour and a half after that it just there's no it's it's just diminishing returns so if we get to it, I also like to present different portfolio opportunities. So for example, and that doesn't mean like an opportunity for their portfolio to to change or anything. What I mean by that is we take the risk tolerance basically questionnaire into a personal meeting. And for me, the best way to gauge someone's risk tolerance is to present multiple different portfolios and then what their pros and cons are and then show them exactly how their retirement would play out with those different portfolios in both good times and bad. And then allow them to choose their own portfolio. Now, because we all know, how are you modeling that? Like, how do you show how will their retirement play out with each of these different portfolios? So, there's features inside Money Guide and Income Lab that let you do that. So, you can choose different portfolios. There's basically a feature in Money Guide where you can show the probability of success using the entire spectrum of portfolios, all the way from 100% fixed income to 100% equity and everything in between. And then you can run a bad timing scenario on each one of them to show what the bad timing would be. And bad timing is basically you retire and, oh, by the way, the next day, 2008 happens all over again. That's bad timing, right? So then in Income Lab, you can do the same. You can show them basically by using, I'd say, a a sliding scale. You can slide the portfolio towards more aggressive or less aggressive and show them how that changes the the historical analysis and how it changes the potential for raises or decrease in income over the course of retirement. And by showing them that, because everybody wants to pick you know, the, an aggressive portfolio when things are going 
fantastic. And everybody wants a conservative portfolio when things aren't going great. But by presenting them all like that and then narrowing down to different options and eventually coming down to one portfolio that gets them to the finish line, that matches their risk tolerance and that matches that they actually chose, right? All I do is really just kind of empower them to choose their own portfolio by showing them the data they need to know. And so how does this meeting ends? Like, do I now get to the, and if you'd like me to help you actually implement the scenario that we've chosen, then I'm happy to work with you as an advisor, or do we, are we still in other, other pre-client meetings? Like what, what comes at the end of this meeting number two? So it depends because sometimes, and this is just the nature of working with engineers and, and analytical type people is sometimes I will have the client in by themselves. And that's not by choice, right? Their, their spouse is always welcome to join. But I know, and they know, we're going to get into a level of detail that may put their spouse to sleep. So what okay. I mean by that is we may have another meeting and go over the abridged version of the, of the retirement for somebody who's not wired like an engineer. Now, if their spouse is in the, you know, some type of industry, they're, they're an engineer, they're analytical, they're in from a STEM career or something, they'll probably want to be in the first or that second meeting. Uh, but if they're not, they may not want to. So we may have another like kind of a recap meeting. Okay, why don't you go home, digest this a little bit, think about it. Email me your questions. I'm going to send you over a copy of what we talked about. So I send you either a copy of the plan or access to Money Guide. Uh, I send you the different portfolio things and thing, and then think about it, digest it, go over it, do what you do at work, right? Look at uh-huh. your data, and then let's get back together and talk about it because you did not absorb everything in this meeting because we talked about too much. So I okay. like to have them in a third time, either with spouse or just to have them back to allow them to ask me all the things that they didn't think about in that second meeting. Okay. So meeting number three is is kind of the come back to ask questions, bring your spouse for an kind of an abridged presentation if they weren't in the prior meeting. And then at that point, they're generally making a decision about whether they want to move forward or not. At that point, they're usually bringing up, they, I like to at least give them the opportunity to bring it up themselves. I So at that point, at the end of the third meeting, I may say, so if we decide to work together, here's all the other things that we're going to work on. We're also going to, uh, you have no estate plan or guardianship documents for, you know, your family or you don't have a will. Let's work on that. Um, I, you know, there's some things we need to look at with insurance, or I know that you have kids going to college in a few years. We're also going to look into this. So I kind of name all the other things that we're going to cover future meetings, just to show them that this wasn't it. Like this, this process is a lot deeper uh, than okay. just having just to meetings. make it clear. Like it's not, it's not as though you've gotten everything. So now we don't need to work together because you've gotten everything. This is still only part of the picture. Correct. Right. And this is a, hopefully a, a lifelong process of us working together. Right. And here's all the things I can do for you on a continuing basis. Like year to year, we're going to look for opportunities for Roth conversions, or we're going to, you know, I use XY tax solutions for taxes. We'll take care of your taxes and that's included in my fee. Or we'll, you know, I'm going to hook you up with an estate planning attorney so we can make sure that your family's protected. And there's a lot that, that leads to, you know, touch points for an ongoing relationship. Uh, So at that point, usually people are ready to either, say that they want to move forward and become a client or not long after that, maybe they'll, you know, they'll go home and think about it again and then come back and we'll talk about it. 
so I guess a, so I guess a couple of follow up questions here. Like I'm just struck you're, you I mean you do a lot of planning work before they decide to become a client, not only in kind of doing the whole plan analysis, but like doing the whole plan analysis twice since you live in <laughs> Money Guide and Income Lab and nuclear professionals, redundant gauges, et cetera. So is I guess I'm wondering like just is it like is there a charge if they don't end up becoming clients? Do you worry about the risk that they engage in all these meetings and you do all of this work and then they don't end up working with you? Absolutely not. There, there is no charge. I would never even ask for that or think about it. I very much believe that you earn someone's business, and if you've done a good enough job at it, then working together should be not even a question. It should be a matter of when and not you know why or or. I'm not scared of let's you know giving all this information or putting in all this work because all that work that you put in will pay, you know, dividends if you end up, you know, the person ends up becoming a client and if they don't there's a few reasons why they didn't. One of them could be you did not present enough value, which that's my fault. Two is they're potentially going to attempt to do it themselves, which they might not be an ideal client anyway if they're thinking in that manner, right? Uh, so at that point, it's kind of a problem that solves itself. And I'm happy to do all that planning work uh, upfront to earn business. And if someone decides not to become a client, I tell everybody that's like, there's no hard feelings. If I do all this and you end up picking somebody else, I'm always here. If you want to, if you want to come back and talk again, don't feel obligated whatsoever by the work that's being done because this is just the tip of the iceberg for us working together. I have not done that much in comparison to what I'm going to do for you over the course of the next 30, 40 years. And and just in practice, like have you had clients that go all the way through this and then don't don't end up moving forward? Like how how often does this actually end up being an issue that turns out they they weren't a fit after you did that much? I have and it was probably one of my lower points after starting the firm is you know, I built all these, um, what I thought were these amazing processes and these things that would resonate with people from nuclear power and found a way to present it in ways that, you know, would, would make sense and were familiar to how they, they worked in their career. And I just, you know, occasionally I'd get a client, especially in the first year that would come through and go through the whole process. And it was great, right? We'd have fantastic meetings and, you know, I walk away and say, man, I, this, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. And then I just never hear from them again. And it, that just, I just, I didn't know what to do. And my, my engineering analytical brain could not get out of a funk that that created. I mean, that, that literally would crippled me at some times. Cause I said, you know, Michael, you know, this, you know, how much work you put in, you know, the value you can bring and you know how much you learn and are always trying to get better and how much time you're, you know, you know, all these things, the client sitting across from you can only make an assumption. They don't know. So when someone chooses not to become a client after you showed them all these amazing things and you know in the back of your mind, I'm going to do the best job for them, it it can really be a demotivator and it can really take the wind out of your sails. And it did for me. It did for me a couple of times. I mean, ultimately, did I mean, did you change anything? Did you do anything differently in response? Have you just like gotten more used to it now it doesn't bother you as much like what what did you do after 
having some clients who go through all this with you and then decide not to hire you after all the stuff you did for them. I would go back and replay the meetings in my head and just try to identify a maybe a place where it went wrong or something I said that didn't, you know, that, that they didn't like or this. And really at the end of the day, what it came down to was a person making a choice goes off of the data and the information that they have at the time. And part of that might be he's new in the business. He's not as experienced. He is a one person firm. He is, there's a lot of different data points that are going into this, right. That, that I'm maybe not thinking about because those things are not deterrents for me because I know that I have a plan for all of those things. And I know even though I'm new in the business, I've put in 10,000 hours and studying and learning how to do this. Right. But they don't know that. Uh, So really what I decided to do was just to always try to refine and, and my processes and get better, but not to dwell on the fact that if somebody chose to make a different decision for their family, then that was the right choice for them. So for those who do become clients, like what what ultimately is the business model? Like how do you get paid when they actually decide to move forward and, <laughs> and work with you and pay? At some point, right? So yeah, we do have an, an assets under management model and it would be basically, you know, your standard, you bring your money over and we'll manage it and and all of our comprehensive financial planning services are all included. So Anything we offer you, you know, we offer you at one fee and that's it. And it's transparent. And if you have to pay another professional, you pay them directly. We don't want to see it or, or, um, we do want to know about it to make sure you're getting the price that, you know, we think is fair. But over the course of 2021, I really, really embraced helping the clientele that don't have that opportunity. So we did. You know, I implemented it in 2020, but 2021 really took off was working with people who have the money to pay for financial planning out of pocket, but don't have assets to transfer. And that has become a sizable part of, of this business, much more than I ever thought it would have. So tell us more about that. I guess like what, what's that model and how does it differ? It, it's it's not much different. It's similar process. I mean, I'm not afraid to give away a lot of things in the beginning to earn someone's business. Because basically, I'm showing them, hey, these are all the things I'm going to do for you. You could go do them yourself. Absolutely. But do you want to? Is this how you want to spend your time? Is this the right opportunity cost? Are there other things you should be working on rather than trying to do all these things and learn all these things yourself when when we could do it? So the model is not any different. It's just really the way they pay. It's not a different experience. It's not a different you know prospect process or anything like that. It's really... Uh, just at the end of the day, how do I get paid? And I like to try to keep them very similar. So as if, you know, the fee would be very similar to as if they were an AUM client, vice versa. So then what are what are those fee levels? Like what's your what's your AUM fee? And then what's the what's the planning fee for non-asset clients? So my typical AUM fee is 0.75% for and that's no tier or anything like that. I did recently raise at least the option to have it higher. And that was to give me some flexibility to be able to do some different things. But if someone is from the nuclear industry, if they are an ideal client, which means they fit not only I don't, you know, the demographics as far as net worth and things like that, but if they have the mindset that we're looking for. I love people who are inquisitive. 
I want someone who's going to question me. Now, it doesn't mean I want them to question me every day because at that point, they're at they, some point know, that gets to be a little tiring as a client. Yeah, it's tiring, and it's and it's also like, well, why why do you want me to do this for you? At that point, you should probably do it yourself, right? But I do like people who take more interest than your average person in their own plan, their own finances, and things like that. And that's for a couple reasons. It, I love talking about this, you know, everything financial planning to a very, very, very great depth, right? So I like clients who like to hear that. They, they like that level of detail. But it also keeps me on my toes and it makes me, it motivates me to always learn, right? I have to be on top of my game. I have to educate myself on new laws and tax codes and things right. that are coming up because I know that they're going to ask me because they're not the type of clients that are just going to come in and do whatever you know recommendations I give them or things. They're the type that are going to challenge because that is what they are used to. That's how they have operated in their career is to challenge and to ask questions and to be knowledgeable. So that carries over. And I, I like that, right? I really like that type of client. So if, if they're that type, um, I still give them the 0.75% uh, of AOM. And then for, as far as like, you know, flat fees. I have a couple different options. You know, some people only need really a one-time plan, and depending on the complexity, I'll basically price it on the amount of time and think that that I think it's going to take. Or there, you know, I have a retainer model as well, where you know you can basically have me, you know, at your disposal, and we'll meet on some kind of recurring basis. But I, I definitely don't like to put people in in plans that they don't need. So I don't think like someone just starting out needs like a retainer model. They just don't need that level service. They need someone to put them on the right track to show them some things to do. And then maybe we'll meet when you have a life change that happens. You get married, you have kids, you buy want to buy a house. Let me help you with that. But uh, if you're just saving in your 401k, I don't need to advise you on that because if you're 22 years old, your asset allocation should probably stay the same for quite some time. So is there a typical fee in the retainer model? I mean, just like, what is that? What does that usually add up to for you? Sure. So for a, let's say, a, I'll give you a few different different options. Like the, for someone who is, let's say, relatively uncomplicated, young, maybe just married or not married, no kids, uh, not, no complicated situations, it might be around $1,200. For somebody who's mid, mid-level, you know, has, you know, maybe some insurance to look at, is buying a home, kind of in that part of life, uh, it'll probably be around $3,500. And then, for somebody a little later, retirement planning can go all the way up to you know seven to eight thousand. And so, do you ever have an issue of like AUM clients who say, actually, you know, well, like I, I've got two million dollars on your fee schedule would be fifteen thousand, but I think I just want the like seven thousand dollar a year retirement planning retainer model. Do you, do you get clients that are trying to move back and forth between the systems like that? No, I've I've never had that before. Uh, I think my clients like the simplicity of of AUM and knowing. I mean, I I charge, you know, on average, I say lower than than most most firms, and that's by design. Part of that was, I'm not gonna lie, I was trying to attract clients when when I had none, right? Mm-hmm. So part of that was a value part, but a lot of it is, you know, I serve this very specific niche. Uh, they happen to be of higher net worth. Than your average people, they happen to be, you know, they they catch on to, to concepts and things very quickly. And so, do you have an then like do you have an asset minimum? No, no, that just happens to work out. I mean, just just with the 
that niche and the clientele that I work with from that industry, they they have enough to make it worth it 99 times out of 100. So what's the typical client in practice then? Typical clients is um, somewhere around a million and a half dollars of investable okay. assets. Most of them minimal if if no debt. And I'd say moderately conservative from an investment outlook. So just the nature of, I specialize in retirement for nuclear professionals and I'm attracting people who've had long careers in the nuclear profession. Like there tends to be assets. Like you don't have to set minimums or targets because it's just who you attract given who you're focusing on. Exactly. It's a, it's a natural fit. And even if they... Let's say that they were not the best savers or whatever it might be. They most likely still have a pension and some other things. And they're, they're on average, you know, they just happen to be a good fit. So, you know, I'm able to charge less and spend. The, the most important thing for me was I wanted to build a firm where I could spend more time with people because I was kind of doing the math at looking at some other firms and how much AUM they had, how many clients. And I'm like, how much time are they really spending with? each family, it doesn't seem like it could be a lot. I might be missing something, right? But I wanted to be able to spend more than that. So I wanted to be able to have fewer clients, charge less, and spend more time with each to be able to, obviously I have to if I'm doing double planning all the time, right? Be able to spend more time with each client. Well, and I guess it's when when the average client's 1.5 million, like you do get a good amount of room to charge quote unquote less than the than the average fee, because I mean, a, a one point five million dollar client, even at at air quotes, just seventy five basis points, like it's more than eleven thousand dollars of revenue per client, which just like that gives you a lot of room to be profitable and provide a lot of service to clients. Absolutely, and Michael, I'll tell you, I've always taken the and it, this this is probably debatable as well and. But I've always been the type that if you are a client, you call me on a Saturday, I'm going to answer. If you call me at 10 o'clock at night, I'm going to answer. Maybe that's, you know, goes back to the theme of service and that's what I'm used to. Maybe I'm just used to working night shifts and weekends, so it doesn't bother me. But I've, I've taken that stance that I chose to be an entrepreneur. So that's, that's the decision I made. And my wife agrees with it. Like she, she never, you know, that. She never says anything to me about it. We could be sitting poolside or on the beach on vacation, and I might have the laptop out. And she knows that, well, the reason why is because that's how, you know, by doing that, that's how it paid for the vacation, right? So I don't mind that. I, like, I'm, I'm 100% okay with being completely accessible 99% of the time. Now, I'm not going to walk out of like my daughter's dance recital to answer the phone, but I will call you back right after. And that's just one thing I did to differentiate myself from people who, where the bigger firms with more experience and you know more advertising and more is that I want that personal experience with you and if you need something I'm going to be there. So how how big is the firm now? You're a couple of years into building into this niche. So it will most likely cross over fifty million dollars next week. So it's in the high forties right now. Uh, about sixty five households. About ten of those are like friends and family. So about fifty five actual you know clients that have gone through the entire planning process and we also do about an additional hundred thousand dollars in revenue on planning like just fee you know fee for planning not aum okay so the the like 
55 slash 65 clients are are specifically like AUM model clients, then there's another segment that are one-time planning or planning only clients. That's correct. So what surprised you the most about building an advisory business? <laughs> what surprised me the most, and it it probably relates to the story that I had about the clients who, you know, were prospective clients who came through and went through the whole process and everything went perfect and then ended up not, you know, becoming clients was what surprised me that was, is that it is not, it's not easy. There's nothing about building any business. You had to learn a financial advisory business. That's easy because number one, you said it's a low trust industry. So most people have some type of assumption about who you are and what you're doing. Now I get a little bit of leeway with that because when I talk to someone from the nuclear industry, there's a little bit of implied credibility because I had certain jobs and held certain licenses in that industry. So that helps, right? But it doesn't make it automatic. And maybe that's what surprised me is that I thought that if I opened this firm that catered towards this super specific niche, that it would be a $100 million firm in the first year. Like it would be automatic. Uh, nuclear Nuclear professionals would be flocking from their power plants to my door to, and it just wasn't like that, right? It still takes a lot of work. It still takes a lot of meetings and a lot of convincing and a lot of presentation of value and a lot of, it still takes all that. So just having, you know, these amazing processes and doing a great job and having, you know, motivation and, and knowledge and all these things that you're supposed to have does not make business success automatic. And so thus the comment of like, I, I did all this work for a prospective client and I showed them all my value and they're in the nuclear industry and I'm from the nuclear industry and we have all these connections. And I've done all this stuff and they didn't say yes. And it, it, it would break my heart. I'm not, I'm not like Michael, I would lose sleep over it. I would, I would replay meetings in my mind and go over every piece of every email and every doc, piece of documentation that we had and just trying to figure out where did I go south? right? Where did I mess this up? I never blamed the client. I always looked at myself and said, there's something I did or said during this process that made them not choose me. And I've got to figure out what that is. And there was really never a smoking gun or anything, but that did, that did bother me. And at one point, and I remember the first year, the first year we brought in $8 million in AUM. And I was like, this was nowhere. I thought it was going to be better. I had very high expectations. And at that point, I really thought about, and you know, should I should I continue this? Like, do I, I I can't do it at this pace. Like, and it's just not getting the response that I thought. So I had a lot of second guessing, right? I had a lot of doubt. I had, you know, conversations with my wife about him. Did I make the right choice? Should I, you know, should I? revert back and, you know, forget all of this happened and, you know, just kind of chalk it up to a life lesson. Yeah. I had a lot of those days or especially in the first year. So what led, what led you to not like, just go back to the nuclear industry and say this, I, I guess this isn't working out. Like what, what led you to stay? A couple things. One, I'm, I'm not a quitter. I can't, I don't have it in me. I just, I can't do it. You know, I'm not, it's not a competitive thing because I'm not competitive with other people. It's really just a, maybe, you know, comparing me to my former self or, you know, um, you know, being competitive with myself, but I I just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fail that easy. Right. Even though I had hard days and even though I had clients that, 
or people, you know, prospective clients that chose not to come to the firm after these, you know, amazing presentations and conversations and, you know, every, you know, thing that, you know, every relationship, you know, that we had could not have been better. I still had a lot of wins in that first year, right? I mean, I came from knowing nothing, changing industries, teaching myself by using the best resources I could find, starting a firm and a very niche firm, right? And then gathering a decent, what I think a decent amount of assets. And most importantly, really providing some help for people because that's what we're supposed to do at the end of the day, right? Uh, So then I look back after the first year and I said, well, I was able to help this person do this and this family avoid this and, you know, these other things. And that's what kept me going. It was, I got into this to serve and it's working. And just because the occasional person that comes in and goes through the process chooses not to be a client does not mean that this is a failure. It reminds me of a recent book out by from Dan Sullivan, a strategic coach, and uh, Ben Hardy writes with him of that's called the gap and the gain. That a, lo- a lot of us tend to stay really focused on. Like, I wanted to be here, I'm not there yet. There's a gap between the two, and 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 that doesn't feel good. And and that we tend to be a lot happier when we focus on the gain. Like, don't look at where you are relative to where you want to be. Look at where you are relative to where you were. Six or twelve or twenty-four months ago, or however far it was in the past, and when you when you look at what you've gained from where you were, right, it starts feeling a lot better. Like, hey, I did bring in eight million from zero. Like, that's a big deal in the first year. And hey, here's all the people I did help and serve in the first year. And it it uh, you know st- staying focused on where we've gained and the progress we've had can give a lot more of a lift than staying looking at a relative to where you wanted to be. Where if we set high expectations for ourselves, it, you know, you can end up really beating yourself up for it. Yeah, you can. And it can really take a toll. I mean, it can, it can stress you. It can, you know, you, you're, you can become exhausted. You can become bitter. You can, you can, it could drive you away from your passion, right? It could, it could have easily driven me out of this and, and, you know, taking me out of the game before I even gave myself a chance, right? If I would have let it get the best of me. So, you know, it's kind of like the Buffett thing, right? You, you, you don't look at the scoreboard. You just keep, you keep driving the ball, right? You just keep on, keep on playing. You keep on working. Eventually it's going to work. And if it's not working, it's because you're doing something wrong, but you have to give yourself some time because it does take time. When you, when you meet a family and you go through financial planning process with them and you do an amazing job and you help them do some great things. That does not mean that they are immediately going to get on social media or, 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 or rent a billboard and put your face on it and say, hire this guy, right? They still need to have some time together to allow the trust to really sink in. And because referring somebody is a big deal. I know if I send my friend to someone to, for any service and they get a bad experience, I feel horrible, horrible. Right? So having someone refer you is a great compliment, but it's also not something that should be taken lightly nor expected, especially early in the process. Uh, And I think that's what I didn't understand was it takes time for even your first client to get to the point of to be comfortable to start referring. And I had almost no clients in the first year. So there really weren't that many people referring even a couple years down the road because so then that snowball effect, right? Finally here in year three, the referrals are really starting to roll in, but it, it's really only the people that came in early because now they've 
they've gotten to that comfort level. And that's a natural progression of business and it takes time. You need to give yourself a chance to be able to experience that. So what do you know now about building the firm that you wish you could go back and tell yourself like four years ago when you were getting started? Same, exactly what I just said. Relax, work, work the process, allow things to happen. If you know that you are doing a good thing and you're doing it for the right reasons and you're charging a fair fee for it and you're doing all of that, I do believe that things will always work out. Now, there's always one-off and, and you know scenarios that happen to people that are unfortunate. Thing, but uh, the average person who really connects with people, who's able to have a conversation with someone and learn about them, because that's the most important thing in this business, and to provide a genuine service will always come out on top. They always will. So if you just keep doing that, I do believe, I, I wish I would have been easier on myself in the beginning, right? Because I think... I could have used a lot of my time to do more productive things or put myself out there more or whatever it might be and not kind of always be analyzing all of these bad things that I thought I was doing and having to go back and replay and figure out what I did wrong. I could have used that time so much more productively, right? And and that is a part of coming from nuclear because we, you know, we have critiques about everything. After every time you run something in the simulator, you sit around and you talk about it and you talk about all the things you did bad. You rarely talk about the things you did well, right? So, so maybe that's a byproduct, but I would, you know, use this all this time to try to figure out all these things that I did wrong and why didn't this client end up, you know, or, you know, have a good experience or this prospective client end up becoming a client or whatever it might be where really I should have just been more positive and okay, let's just keep going forward. I did it, but I could have done it better. So any other advice that you would give career changers that are are you know, coming out of a profession and then want to niche back to their old profession? Yeah, I'd, I'd find a way to make it super relatable. Uh, think of the things that make your industry special and different from, and it doesn't matter what it is, and build around that, right? Make your flyer reflect or your, your website reflect that industry, right? Make all of make make it super niche. Make it so niche it's annoying. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Because you're there's one of two things. Someone's either gonna really, really love it and they're gonna say, this is the place for me, or they're gonna say, this is this is crazy. I don't want anything to do with that. And both of those are okay because you're gonna end up being able to talk to your ideal client at the end of the day. So don't be afraid to go super niche. And I, I, I almost made this mistake in the beginning. I remember I, I was going to make the website and make it kind of generic. We're like, yeah, we kind of work with nuclear, but we'll also work with you too. If you want to work together, cause I don't want to exclude you cause I'm brand new. And I, I, who, who am I to exclude someone at this point? Right. I, don't th- I think don't be afraid of that. There is no matter what industry you come from, there's plenty of opportunity in your industry and in your industry alone. There are, there's more people in that industry, no matter where you come from, than you can serve. So go after them, talk to them, help them. There, it's going to be a better experience for you and it's going to be a better experience for them. So don't be afraid to go super niche. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the, the word success means, means very different things, to different people. And so you're on this wonderful success path, you know, as, as much as you've 
beat yourself up about it over the first first few years here like being <laughs> being at 50 million dollars after after barely over 3 years is is an incredible achievement so the the business is going well how do you define success for yourself at this point success for me is i i do want to grow the firm but i will never grow it at the detriment or at the expense of the quality experience that people are getting so I have no AUM goals. I don't have uh, revenue goals. I don't have any of that. And I know that that's in, in traditional theory, that's poor business planning. But what I mean by that is I will continue to grow this firm and serve the, the, the people in the niche that I can serve best. And I will do it all the way up to the point where I feel like uh, if I take on one more client, the service and the experience they're going to get will decline. And then at that point, I'll, I'll either stop growing or I'll find a way to grow the firm by hiring people or whatever it might be to be able to keep that level of service. Because that, that to me is success. It is not what you put on your ADV at the end of the year. And it's not what you put on your W-2. And it's none of those things. It's how much impact can you make to people and still be able to have a good life yourself. So a really, really smart person who was a mentor to me and just somebody I really looked up to. His name was Tommy. He was the vice president when I worked at the plant when I just started there. I was a nobody. And he said the key to being successful in this industry, and he was talking about nuclear, but it applies anywhere, is the key to being successful is being pleased and proud, but never satisfied. So you should you should be happy with what you've done. You should be proud of yourself for the accomplishments you've made, but don't ever think you know it all. Don't ever think you're smart enough. Don't ever think you're successful enough. Don't ever be satisfied. Keep trying to be better. And even if being better doesn't mean more AOM, being better may mean giving your clients or the next client a better experience than the one before. And then the next one, an even better experience. And you just keep doing that. And that is success. I really like that. The The key to being successful is being pleased and proud, but never satisfied. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I got to tell you, this was my pleasure. And you know, when I say like I was searching the end of the internet to learn how to become a good planner and everything, I can't tell you how much of a role that XYPN and Kitsis.com and all of that played in it. I mean, that was my resource. I watched so many webinars and read so many articles and was on the the planning boards using the, the the forums and asking questions to advisors and and I could not have done it without it and and think about I I don't know anything else. I don't know what it's like to work at a warehouse or to work at insurance or to work as a at a broker dealer. I've never done any of that. I was homegrown as a as a fiduciary and a comprehensive financial planner by using your tools. And I thank you for that, sir. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Absolutely. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. 
And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.